Welcome to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. This teaching is from our 2023 Advent series, Christ the True and Better. During this series, you will explore how all of redemptive history pointed to Jesus, who is the true and better man, Son, Deliverer, and King. We hope this helps you understand and apply God's Word in your life today. No, uh, it is a joy and an honor to, to return again to Bay Ridge to see so many familiar faces and, and most of all to bring God's Word uh, before the congregation. I'm stepping into this series. We've already kind of talked about the series that Tony kicked off for us on Christ, the true and better. Right? So um, when, we, when we talk about this, uh, Brett especially told me, you know, let's, let's talk about how to read scripture in this sermon. So we're going to be talking a little bit about typology, which is a fancy word for talking about, uh, you know, looking at the patterns the, that are woven together throughout scripture, Old and New Testament together. There are these threads that connect and intertwine, and they, all throughout covenantal history, up to, up to the New Testament and even to the present day, we see this tapestry of revelation. Today, I'm looking at just one of those patterns. There are so many of them that we could talk about, so many that will be talked about in this series. I'm just going to be looking at the sacrificial son that we find in the life of Isaac, a pattern whose threads depict the incarnation and especially the death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But in the case of Isaac, we'll really see that typological interpretation, this study of the patterns of scripture, it's not an easy thing. It's not a math formula. I, I walk a fine line. We all do when we're doing typology. We walk a fine line between the simplicity of God's good news and the complexity of the ways that he's communicated that throughout history. On the one hand, God's word is simple and straightforward. Everything we need for salvation is clearly and plainly stated. On the other hand, God's word, like God himself, is, it has an unfathomable depth of meaning. We're never going to get to the end of the truth that God has spoken to us. And typological interpretation is one of the ways that we have to kind of bring out new and fresh perspectives on that pure and simple truth of the good news. My simple message today is that Jesus is God's beloved son who has willingly suffered and died as a sacrifice in the place of his people and then risen from the dead. But this message, simple as it is, is enriched and enlivened when we consider Isaac, Abraham's beloved son, as a pattern that Jesus fills out. In God's covenantal control, his, his providential control of history, Isaac participates in many different patterns. I could have talked about his miraculous birth, the fact that he receives and transmit the tra transmits the covenant, the fact that he, like Abraham, is called a prophet and an anointed one in Psalm 105. But also in God's control of history, there are many ways in which Isaac doesn't really look like Jesus. Instead, he seems to enter into the pattern of his sinful forefathers, like when he abdicates responsibility for Rebekah, his wife, or when he allows sibling rival rivalry to infect his home. In these cases, Isaac is more clearly found in the pattern of the old man, the first man, Adam, that we heard about last week. If we still say that Isaac points forward to Jesus, he sometimes does so only in a negative way to show how Jesus got right what Isaac got wrong. This morning, I'm not going to look at the other parts of Isaac's 
Isaac's life that I mentioned, I'm going to focus in on just one part in Genesis chapter 22, a complex passage. This chapter is often titled in Christian Bibles, The Sacrifice of Isaac, and in Jewish Bibles, The Binding of Isaac. So I think it would be probably more accurately titled, The Test of Abraham's Obedience Within the Covenant. But my titles are always too long for Bibles, so nobody's going to take that up. We'll see in this chapter that Isaac lives through the pattern of suffering and endurance, of death and resurrection that Jesus will fill out perfectly. Yet we also see that Abraham, who's really the focus of the chapter, lives through a different pattern of trust and obedience that Jesus will also fill out perfectly. And there's even another unnamed character who lives out a different pattern of substitutionary sacrifice that Jesus will fill out perfectly, ultimately, and once for all. All these threads of the pattern together, they, they point in a richer way than any one thread by itself to Jesus' perfect, lifelong, patient, vicarious obedience to the point of death, to his vindicating resurrection as a just reward for his obedience. Let's read Genesis 22. I have it on the screen from the English Standard Version. And we are to hear this as God's word, infallible and true. Verse 1, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw that place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hands the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men 
And they arose and went together to Beersheba. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Now, this passage is long. It has lots of interesting details, and it's got a very complex history of interpretation. So I need to pick and choose the details I'm going to talk about in order to keep this sermon under three hours long. Don't worry. It's, it's way under two. All right. So um, <clears throat> the first three words are going to slow us down, though. Right? Whenever you get to a passage of scripture that starts with, after these things, you, you have to make a little bit of effort to figure out what's happened so far. Right? So in God's dealings with Abraham, starting in Genesis 12, we encounter God's amazing promises to give Abraham offspring, to provide a land for his offspring, to bless him and magnify his name, and to make him a source of blessing for many nations. This fourfold promise is nothing short of an arch promise that reverses sin's effects, as described in Genesis 3 onward. The offspring promised to Abraham becomes the next installment of that offspring promised to the woman. In Genesis 3.15, as we hear God cursing the deceiving serpent, the devil in disguise, God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, the offspring, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, from the very beginning, as soon as a judgment was pronounced on humankind for sin, God gave a promise of hope. An offspring from the woman, a true and faithful human, would one day come to destroy the works of the devil. This is a promise about the coming anointed one who, spoiler alert, is our Lord Jesus. We already see that the offspring promised to Abraham, initially Isaac, before he's even born, fits into this pre-established pattern that develops until it's filled out by the person and work of Jesus. In this deep pattern, starting in Genesis 3.15, Paul finds the, the warrant to very clearly identify Abraham's promised offspring with the anointed one. Galatians 3.16 reads as follows, "'To Abraham the promises were spoken.'" And to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, in regard to many, but rather in regard to one, and to your offspring, who is the anointed one. We'll see that faithful typological interpretation practiced by the Apostle Paul, among others, is not just superficial and speculative. It's not about secret codes and cleverness. It's about carefully reading along the lines of these deep patterns within God's revelation from the very beginning. Back to the fourfold promise given to Abraham. That unfolds over several chapters in Abraham's life. Starting in chapter 12, right? Before our passage, the chosen man, Abram, found the promised land in chapter 12. And he's been renamed Abraham in chapter 17 to reflect the fact that God is not just going to give him a miraculous child through Sarah, but will also make the offspring of Abraham exceedingly fruitful. The promise to Abraham is framed in terms of a covenant in chapters 15 and 17. The the covenant is this kind of relationship that secures both God's promises and Abraham's commitment. In chapter 17, God has already revealed his intention to pass the covenant promise through the miraculous offspring, Isaac. And so it will be called an everlasting covenant in Genesis 17. 
All right, that context is very important. This context of an everlasting covenant that is going to go through Isaac is very important when we come to Genesis 22, verse 1. The same covenant-making, covenant-keeping God tested Abraham in verse 1. This test is not to show whether Abraham is qualified for receiving the covenant. The covenant and its promises have already been given by grace, and through faith they have been received. It's also not a test to, for God to learn something new that he didn't know before. So later on in verse 12, when the angel of the Lord says, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me, we don't have a conundrum about God's knowledge, whether he knows all things or not. That can't be what's happening. Remember, the whole test takes place after God has already promised and announced the goal of the covenant. God who created and chose and prepared Abraham for such a time as this was not in a sudden state of uncertainty. The whole episode is about God's public judgment that Abraham, who is a sinful man that's been converted, shaped, and refined in his walk with God, Abraham is now a fit representative to pass on the everlasting covenant. In Genesis 22:12, God is declaring that the quality of Abraham's faith, as Bruce Waltke puts it, had not yet played out on the stage of history until this very point. The test is meant to reveal something to Abraham and to his offspring after him, and to us even, about the content of saving faith in the true God, and also the role that obedience plays in this everlasting covenant. Let me say just a little bit more about the test. Look at verse 2 with me. Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. This verse is fascinating, but it's also staggering. Let's go in order. First, note that the dramatic tension. It comes out even better in the, in the Hebrew word order. I've kind of reproduced that a little bit on the slide. That Your son, your only one whom you love, Isaac. Now, Isaac's name comes last in this sentence, and it comes with a punch. The drama of this request, this, this difficult request, is stretched across the narrative as we hear the name of Isaac repeated alongside the word son over and over again. The word son, in fact, occurs 13 times in these 19 verses. We're reminded of who Isaac is to Abraham, what he means to Abraham, how special he is to Abraham. This is the miracle boy, the promised offspring. Second thing to notice, the, the language of the command and the place where Abraham uh, is commanded to go, both of those are significant. The peculiar Hebrew expression for go is the same go that we heard in Genesis 12. It's a very peculiar phrase that's used only in those two points in the Hebrew Bible. And also this idea of going to a land and a mountain that God will reveal. That's also repeated from Genesis chapter 12. So the attentive listener will know that Genesis 22 is an extension of what started in Genesis 12. And this place, Moriah, the land of Moriah, that appears again in 2 Chronicles 3, verse 1. The chronicler says that that is the site of the temple in Jerusalem. There's this interesting connection. Uh, that detail kind of fits well to this pattern that points forward to God's future acts of redemption. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But third, 
And this is really the most difficult thing about this verse, is this mention of a burnt offering or an ascension offering. We've already seen this offering once in Genesis. It's performed by Noah after the flood in Genesis 8. In this kind of offering, the, the thing to be offered is completely consumed by fire. Symbolically, it, it bears away the guilt of someone else. And the offering, as it's consumed, it sends up smoke to the heavens. So symbolically, you could say that Abraham is just giving back to God what God gave to him. But to rest there is, is really sugarcoating this, right? Because all that symbolism in the act still requires Abraham to kill his son, his only one whom he loves, Isaac. That's horrifying. We should be a little bit horrified at that. It's, it's as hard to accept as the testing of Job. And the history of interpretation on this passage is full of people. I mean, just about everyone who has ever read this passage closely has been bothered by this command. It's okay if we're bothered by it too. Many, maybe you're among them, have kind of wondered about the morality of this passage. What does it suggest about Abraham's character or even about God's character? And that question will come to the forefront if we're reading this passage outside of that everlasting covenant, if we're not reading it in its context, right? But neither Abraham nor God has forgotten the context of the everlasting covenant. Abraham knows that God made a fourfold promise and secured it with a formal covenant for many years. <clears throat> Abraham also knows that God has been training him as a co-participant in this covenant. Now, that could be a kind of a complicated idea, but I, I, I want to illustrate it by looking at Genesis 18. So Genesis 18 has the announcement of Isaac's birth to Sarah, an aged Sarah who doesn't quite believe that it's going to happen. But right after the announcement of Isaac's birth, God says he's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Those two don't really seem to go together. Those two stories don't seem to go together. But if we see Sodom and Gomorrah as kind of a, a foreshadowing of the final judgment, and God decides to invite Abraham into his divine counsel. Listen to what God says in Genesis 18 on the slide. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he promised. Okay, there's a lot going on here, but to kind of unpack it, God already decided he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. But he wanted Abraham to practice interceding on behalf of them anyway. It was a covenantal training exercise. God's intention with Abraham in Genesis 22, our passage, is very similar. He is going to preserve Isaac, yet he's still inviting Abraham to enter into the pattern that points to God's sacrifice of God's own beloved son to secure the fourfold promise. God is offering Abraham a glimpse of his ultimate plan, which we see expressed in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't just give him like a Christmas gift. He gave him 
to a life of suffering, and to a death on a cross. Many interpreters forget this covenantal context. They're stuck in the rut of reading scripture, and especially the Old Testament, as if it's just a handbook of moral examples. If you're reading Genesis 22 as part of that kind of handbook, you only have two bad options for interpretation. Either you're going to impugn the righteousness of God, or you're going to say that Abraham actually failed the test because he should have refused it. But we're not limited to those two bad options if Scripture is not a handbook of moral examples. I'll say it again. Scripture actually is not a handbook of moral examples. It does have a few moral examples in there, of course, but that's not its primary content. Scripture is God's revelation about his redemptive acts in history, about his plan and power and provision to reconcile to himself his sinful people and the broken world through his beloved son. In the majority of scriptural histories, including Genesis 22, there is no go and do likewise implied. We're not supposed to look at the command to sacrifice Isaac and think to ourselves, maybe I should be sacrificing my children too. We're also not even really supposed to say, well, maybe I should just be looking for more extreme ways to serve God, like Abraham. Okay, so that's the negative. What are we supposed to think? This passage recounts a once-for-all, unrepeatable event in God's dealings with Abraham and Isaac and with them alone. It does teach us. It teaches us about the trust and obedience in the covenant, Primarily, it teaches us about the trust and obedience that the incarnate Son of God would display perfectly as the Son of Abraham. It doesn't teach us what we're supposed to imitate. It does teach us what God has done, is doing, and will do on our behalf. Because Abraham has already been through part of the covenantal training program, like Genesis 18, in Genesis 22, God knows that Abraham is ready for this moment this climactic and final test. Abraham's readiness is displayed in the resolute, matter-of-fact actions of verses 3 through 4. He he prepares for the trip, and he ends up at the land of Moriah, at one of the mountains. Abraham's assurance of faith is displayed when he tells his servants, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again, in verse 5. The plural verb is clear. Abraham says that both he and Isaac will come again. He's not lying. Hebrews 11 spells this out for us. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it is said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So in short, Abraham's faith is a resurrection faith, a faith in the living God who gives life to the dead. And that's essentially the same thing that Paul says in Romans 4. There we learn that Abraham's faith is giving, uh, is, is in the life-giving God, is in the God who raises from the dead, who can bring about miraculous births and so on. And that's of a piece with our own faith in Jesus, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and raised from the dead in power. But less clear in this passage, from what we've seen so far, is Isaac's faith. In this narrative, Isaac doesn't seem to be on the same page as Abraham, given the fact that 
he carries a pile of wood up the mountain in verse 6, we can infer he's probably not a very little boy. He's carrying the wood for the offering. But his question in verse 7 reveals that he also doesn't quite know what his father is up to. Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Many retellings of the story like to portray Isaac as a fully grown man and a willing and active participant in the event. I think that's a reflex of that moral examples kind of reading. We want to soften how terrifying the command is, and we want to make Isaac consensual. Now, Isaac does seem to have good rapport with his father, and he even seems to be in the habit of obeying his father. But from his ignorance, I think it would be too much to say that he's freely consenting to be sacrificed. The fact that Abraham binds Isaac, like the little logo has the hands bound together, right? He binds Isaac uh, in verse 9. That's another sign that Isaac might not be on the same page. The fact that Abraham, it's Abraham who is acknowledged as one who fears and obeys God in verses 12, 16, and 18, not Isaac. I think that's another point that makes us say we don't need to ascribe extra merit to Isaac beyond doing his duty to honor his father. And this point is really important for understanding Isaac's place in that pattern that points to Jesus. And I'll say more about that. I'll bring these threads together in just a moment. But let's see how Abraham answers Isaac's question. God will provide for himself a lamb for a burnt offering, my son. As with his earlier statement to the servants in verse 5, Abraham is not lying. He's speaking ambiguously, maybe. He's not disclosing everything that he knows. But he's also speaking out of a profound trust in God's provision, in God's vision for what his people need and when. Again, this is a statement of resurrection faith, for God knows that we all need him for life. We need his intervention, especially his substitution, to save us from the guilt and power of sin. In the next few verses, ending with a slow-motion moment, Abraham builds an altar, lays out the wood, binds Isaac, sets Isaac on top of the wood, reaches for the knife, I love that detail, slows slows us down, reaches for the knife, then takes the knife, to slaughter his son. Wait. We know that the everlasting covenant will go through Isaac from chapter 17 and from chapter 21 as well. We know that Abraham has confidence that Isaac will return along with him, that God will provide an offering somehow. But how can that be? The knife is in Abraham's hand. The knife is for his son, for his only one whom he loves. For Isaac, the voice from heaven bearing the covenantal name stops him just in time, relieving the tension and declaring God's public judgment on Abraham's performance in this test. Now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Again, there's no sense here of the all-knowing God learning something new. The angel is only declaring that a new thing has been displayed. Abraham has displayed the holy fear that is fitting for the covenant servant. His fear is is manifested in his obedience, both to offer Isaac and also to stop offering him. His obedience to renounce what is most precious and to receive it back again with a debt of gratitude. This fear signals that Abraham now better understands the heart of the God 
who will offer up his own beloved son. And therefore, when Abraham finds that ram stumbling onto the scene, he immediately offers it without any command to do so. Look at verse 13 with me more closely. Behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Now, it's in vogue today among certain theologians and scholars to to downplay this idea of a substitutionary sacrifice, to say that it's not really central to Scripture. It's a fringe idea that was really rejected, and we don't need that for our theology. Now, there are many motives for downplaying the idea of substitution, but I'm going to say that that view can only be maintained by suppressing scriptural data, by ignoring the plainest sense of Genesis 22:13, and by missing those deeply woven patterns that portray and forecast the person and work of Jesus. Here, the ram is clearly a substitute for Isaac. Abraham knows that this is the animal God has provided for himself instead of his son. And that's why he names the place the Lord provides in verse 14. Now that deep pattern of Genesis 22 has this ram, this substitute, pointing forward to Jesus. But Isaac does not. More clearly in this passage, Isaac's place in the pattern corresponds to that of the redeemed people of God. We see this from Paul's illustration in Galatians 3 and 3 through 4. I won't read all of that to you today, but there Isaac is properly Abraham's son, not because he's biologically descended from Abraham, but because he's been received by Abraham through faith in God's promise. That's true of all Abraham's children. Look at what John the Baptist tells the uh, Pharisees and Sadducees in Matthew's gospel. They're coming to investigate his baptism, and he says this, Do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So he did in the case of Isaac, and so he does in our case. We, like Isaac, are children of Abraham through faith in that promise the promise of the true son, now a promise that is realized in Jesus, the anointed one. So let's return to the end of the narrative before I try to tie all these things together. The result of Abraham's obedience is an enhancement, an intensification of that fourfold promise. God says in verses 16 through 18, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Hmm. The text is clear. The fourfold promise, if you were to compare this to the other chapters, it, it gets more intense here. And it's based on, or the intensification is based on Abraham's obedience because Abraham obeyed. This reveals something very important about the everlasting covenant. It is a covenant begun by God's grace and maintained by God's grace, but it is also a covenant in which God's people are called to respond to that grace through service and obedience. And that's true in the days of Abraham and in the days of Jesus and in our own day. 
In the new covenant, the fundamental dynamic of grace and obedience, of good news and law, has not changed. There are many places we might look to see this illustrated. The Sermon on the Mount is a great one. For time, let's go to a shorter passage, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. As with Abraham and in all the other administrations of this covenant of grace, also in the new covenant, we see that we are called to obedience. Our our salvation comes entirely by grace, entirely through faith, as Isaac's salvation came when he was basically passively lying there on the altar. Yet grace still obligates us to be gracious. Grace still obligates us to be gracious. I think that's part of the, uh, you are blessed, therefore go out and be a blessing. That is the same logic uh, that we see here in Genesis 22. Christianity is not lawlessness. It celebrates the law of God being written upon the heart and the freedom to obey God in holiness and truth. So before I come to a few questions for application, I want to draw together some of these threads that uh, have been kind of pulled at various points in the passage. In Genesis 22, we have two things pointing very clearly to Jesus. Abraham, who is the obedient servant of God, and the ram, who is the substitute that delivers Isaac. Although in Isaac we see kind of the negative outlines of the death and resurrection of God's beloved son, Isaac points forward more clearly to God's people saved by grace and through faith. You and me. God's beloved son took our place. And I don't only mean at the cross. Throughout his entire life, what theologians call the period of his humiliation, he was obeying God perfectly on behalf of all his people. It was, this is what we mean by a vicarious obedience, is on our behalf. Uh, a superabundant obedience, uh, a saving obedience that would be reckoned to us, considered ours, in order to make us righteous, as Paul says in Romans 5. As the Son of God, he owed no obedience. He's, his will is one with the Father and the Spirit. But as the incarnate Son, the true man, the second and last Adam that Tony talked about last week, Jesus rendered a perfect obedience that overflows to all his people by grace. We hear in the Gospels that he is God's beloved son in his conception, birth, childhood, at his baptism and the initial test in the wilderness, throughout his ministry, and climactically at the moment when he dies on the cross and is raised from the dead. He is God's beloved son who did what Abraham's beloved son did not have to do. God spared Isaac, but not Jesus, who fills out the pattern in a way that far exceeds anything Isaac could do. The obedience of Abraham led to an enhanced promise. The obedience of Jesus filled out the pattern, not only to show the greatness of the promise, but also to bring the promise to realization. 
Look how Paul says it in, in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Jesus is the true and better Abraham. He's also the true and better son who takes the place of Isaac. In other words, as the true and better son, he is uniquely qualified to be the true and better sacrifice for all the promised children of Abraham through faith. Isaac was figuratively raised from the dead because of Abraham's obedience. And that's like us, who have a hope of real resurrection because Jesus' superabundant obedience, for which he was raised from the dead and exalted, is now reckoned to us by grace and through faith. There's a lot packed into that, but let's come to some questions for application. My first one is for, for anyone out there uh, who may not yet have embraced Jesus. Now, have you embraced this one, this Jesus, the anointed one, with a full trust that he has accomplished everything needed to deal with your sins, to bring reconciliation between you and the holy God? If you haven't done so and you'd like to know more, then, then please come to talk to me after the service or the pastors and the elders uh, or find the information on the church's bulletin or their website to, to arrange a meeting later. If you think you're not ready for that, you're still wondering, I encourage you to keep coming to hear God's word preached, to see God's people living together and worshiping together. Pick up a Bible and read for yourself. Ask God for his help. And finally, if you are a baptized member of a local church who trusts in Jesus alone for your salvation and leans on his word for your understanding, then I have a few more questions for you. A second question. How is your knowledge of Jesus' person work enriched by God's revelation in the Old Testament? In particular, how do we get, or like, what do we gain from this typological interpretation looking at redemptive patterns in Genesis 22? In these questions is a word of warning about our attitude towards the Old Testament. It's not old in the sense of being replaceable or irrelevant. Surely many things are different for us on this side of Jesus' death and resurrection, but Jesus' death and resurrection also casts a lot of light on the truth that God communicated in the Old Testament. The same spirit of the anointed one that now enlivens the church was also at work in Abraham and the other prophets, guiding them to look forward to the things that are now fulfilled for us. As the person and work of the anointed one sheds light on the Old Testament, now the Old Testament, like a diamond, shines in that brilliant light. It sparkles and it reveals new facets of the anointed one. His power, his preeminence, his purpose, why he suffered and rose in glory. In this way, the Old Testament, as it shows how so many patterns were filled out by Jesus, it prompts us to recognize Jesus as worthy of our worship together with the Father and the Spirit. My third question. Can you distinguish between what Scripture holds out for our imitation and what it describes as once-for-all events? In particular, do you understand that God's command to Abraham in Genesis 22-2 is not a repeatable command for anyone else to follow? Most distorted interpretations of Genesis 22 start with the assumption that Scripture has to be just giving us moral examples in every story. But that's a bad starting assumption. 
when God wants to teach us what to do and what not to do, he gets very explicit. There are hundreds of commands telling us what to do and not to do in both Testaments. We don't need to go looking for uh, extra commands in the narratives, in the histories. Now, sometimes a, a figure in scriptural history will you know, be a great example of something God has commanded. I'm thinking of, uh, of Joseph in Potiphar's house or Ruth returning to Bethlehem with Naomi. Great examples that show us what God was commanding in his law. Even the general outline of Abraham's obedience and trust kind of fits into this category. But we get the information about whether they're a good example or a bad example from the commands of God, not from the bare history. We don't need to allegorize. In Genesis 22, God is not suggesting what is moral, what we should do and what we should not do. Instead, he's revealing the death and resurrection of his beloved son that would be necessary to reconcile us and the world to himself. Fourth, that question kind of raises another question about the theme of obedience. How should you understand your obedience in relation to salvation by grace and through faith? And I mentioned already Ephesians 2. You could also look at Philippians 2 as a great place. The only work of obedience that can earn our salvation, so to speak, is the work done by Jesus, the anointed one, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, as 1 Corinthians 1 has it. But after we have received all blessings in him, through faith, the desire to obey God's word, repenting in all cases of disobedience, that's the essential mark of this faith. Faith works itself out through love, according to Galatians 5. And faith without subsequent faithful works is a dead shell, according to James 2. As the theologian John Murray once said, it is a living faith that justifies, and living faith unites to Christ. No one has entrusted himself to Christ for deliverance from the guilt of sin who has not entrusted himself also to him for deliverance from the power of sin. In other words, the faith by which God declares us to be righteous is the same faith by which he empowers us to will and to do his good pleasure. And building on that, a fifth and final question, what comfort should we find in Jesus' perfect lifelong, patient, vicarious obedience to the point of death and his vindicating resurrection from the dead. If, as I said already, that Jesus' perfect obedience has been reckoned to you so that God rightly declares you to be righteous, then you have a firm foundation for confidence that he will preserve you to the end. Your failures are covered by your Lord's successes. Your confession of sin and repentance is really matched and more than matched by the intercession of the righteous one who stands in heaven now on your behalf. Not only are your past sins wiped away, totally clean, but you have also been given the privileges and the powers promised to the offspring of Abraham. The greatest one in Galatians 3.14 is the gift of the Holy Spirit who unites us to Jesus and makes us fellow heirs with him as beloved children. Through faith, we are beloved children, not only of Abraham, but also of Abraham's God. Pray with me. Oh, Father, as we celebrate the advent of your beloved son and we look forward to his return, Help us to hear your spirit speaking in the scriptures. 
both old and new. Help us to become not mere hearers, but also doers of what you command, trusting that the obedience and righteousness of our Lord Jesus covers our sins and equips us with all that we need to endure to the end. This we ask you, O Father, through Jesus the Son, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks to Philip for sharing that word with us. What, what he was just doing and what we're trying to do in this series is giving us spectacles, as it were, to really see and understand the scripture. Uh, this past week, when we were down in Dallas, uh, we were touring the stadium there, and there was a, uh, in the lobby area, there was this, it looked like a big screen or something, and you could just see dots moving around. And at first, we just thought it was just a weird pattern of dots. But the more I kind of looked at it, I was like, that kind of looks like it's some kind of film of games, but you can't quite see it. And the guy said, turn around and look in the mirror. And when you did, the whole thing became clear. The mirror's Christ. That's what Philip was just showing us. We can sometimes read the Bible and it can seem like dots that are disconnected. And we read Genesis 22 and we're like, am I supposed to take my kid and kill him? Not in the moments when you would like to do that, but in those other moments. Okay, the rest of life. The answer is no. Turn and look at Christ, and everything suddenly makes sense. That's what we're doing throughout this series. Everyone we're looking at, Christ is who it's pointing to. If, if you're reading and you're not seeing Jesus, you're not reading rightly. Turn, look to him, and suddenly all those dots start making sense. We're going to be coming to the Lord's table now, as we do each and every uh, week. And as we are coming, I want to remind us we're going to be doing a couple of things. We're going to be professing our faith in Christ, and we're going to be celebrating the fact that we are received because of what Christ has done. I remind you, what you bring to salvation, what I bring to salvation is sin, lack, nothing, Christ brings everything. But then out of that, as Philip says, there's a heart that, Father, I want to be obedient. Father, I, I want to do things that are pleasing to you. And so we're going to be asking the Holy Spirit as well at the end. We're going to be crying out for God's Spirit to form and to shape us in that way. Now, because Christ is the center, we're going to stand together. And if you can stand with me, we're going to recite the creed. And I remind us, we do this, this is an ancient creed that goes back to the very earliest days of the church. In fact, in the early church, very often, particularly in the West, when you were baptized, they would recite the lines of this creed. I believe in God the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth. And the person ready to be baptized would say in Greek, pistueo, I believe. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. Pistueo, I believe believe. This is the faith. And notice as we go through this, like the scripture, it's centered on Jesus. There's much more in this creed about Jesus than there is about anything else, because that's the lens through which everything makes sense. So brothers and sisters, we are going to recite the creed together, and then we will come to the Lord's table. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 
He was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy universal church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. We are in just a moment. We're going to be passing out the elements after I do the kind of introduction to what we'll be doing today. And as the elements are passed out, we remind you, you do not have to be a member of Bay Ridge Christian Church. We just stated about the Holy uh, Catholic or Universal Church. God has a church. And if you are part of that church, you are welcome to participate with us. But you need to believe the things that we've been talking about. If you don't, don't participate because this meal in taking this bread and taking this cup is a profession. I believe this. My hope and faith are in Christ. Uh, when the elements will come by, there'll be two little cups. You can take them both out and then we'll take together. So brothers and sisters, all who confess this faith are welcome to this table. For what I receive from the Lord, I also pass on to you that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out so that all of your sins may be forgiven. Drink from this, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We're going to go ahead and pass out the elements. And as they're coming out, take just a moment to meditate and give thanks for what Christ has done. And then be asking the Holy Spirit to meet us in this sacrament to form and shape our hearts. Brothers and sisters, is not the bread that we break a participation in the body of Christ? Father, as we hold this bread of the sacrament in our hands, we are reminded that all food is a gift from you, and we give you thanks for how you richly provide it to us. But we're also reminded that food was an occasion of the first temptation. When we rebelled and we turned from you, and we receive the just penalty of death for our sin. Lord, as Adam and Eve rebelled, so have we. So today we freely confess our sin before you, asking for your mercy to forgive and cleanse our sin so that we might serve you now and forever. Brothers and sisters, take and eat. And is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Lord, when Abraham took Isaac, his beloved son, up the mountain, in faith, he said that you would provide a lamb. And Lord, as we have just read and seen again on that day, you provided 
the lamb so that Isaac might be spared. But Father, when your son ascended the mount, he was not delivered. For he is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Father, we thank you that he did not shrink back, but freely offered himself for us. Through his sacrifice, we are saved, for he bore the death we are due, and through his resurrection, we have life forevermore. Knowing all of this, Lord, we receive this cup in faith, giving thanks for the blood of Jesus, the true Lamb of God, who has taken away our sin. Brothers and sisters, take and drink. Let's stand together. And as we do almost every week, I want to remind you there is a method in our madness. This third prayer that we offer almost every week after the cup is a cry for the Holy Spirit to come. Brothers and sisters, you just ate and drank at the table of God, not because of your obedience, but because of the obedience of Christ. But as those who've been saved by grace through faith, we want to be obedient. And so let us cry out for God to freshly uh, impart his Holy Spirit and power to us. Lord, today we have been reminded of Jesus' great sacrifice for us. We thank you that he did not shrink back from obedience even when it required the cross. And as those who have received the mercy given through the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Lord, we now long to be obedient sons and daughters who offer ourselves as living sacrifices to you. But Lord, we know even this is beyond our strength. So we cry out for the fresh presence and power of your Spirit to fill us. Come, Spirit of God, and conform our thoughts and desires to your will. Come, Spirit of God, and conform our words and actions to your word. Come, Spirit of God, and stir up your gifts within us so that we might serve others. Lord, we thank you for all we have been given through Christ. And we pray that this week you would open our eyes and use us to spread your blessings to others. We thank you for all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus, the true sacrificial son, the true lamb of God. And God's people say, amen. Amen. Now, brothers and sisters, receive the blessing of your God. I remind you, it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a spotless lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Brothers and sisters, through him you have been redeemed, set apart, and given every blessing. So go forth and be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the teaching ministry of Bay Ridge Christian Church. 
For more teachings and resources, please visit www.brcc.church.